All right. Well, the title of the message tonight is Settling In. We are going to see Adam and Eve settling in into their new home that God has created for them. And so last week, we concluded the seven days in which God created everything, uh, and we slightly touched the next part of the account in Genesis chapter 2. Now, what we find in Genesis 2, starting with verse 4, is a transition away from the overview, and we begin to get the details of day 6, okay? So day six is the most important day out of the seven days of creation, since this was the day that God created man, male and female in his own image and likeness. And so you can kind of think of it in this way, okay? So these are all the verses in Genesis chapter one and two, and this is how you could divide them up into two parts. And uh, in our times together, we have been looking at Genesis chapter one in depth all the way to chapter two, verse three. That's been our, I think we've done four studies uh, just within really that one chapter. Uh, We dabbled in to verse four last week where we talked about Yahweh. Do you guys remember that? We talked about the personal name of God that is gonna begin to be used 19 times in chapters two and three of the book of Genesis. And this is where we get the details. Essentially what happens is that chapter one is this overview of the seven days, but God through the Holy Spirit and through the biblical author of ultimately Moses, they being God decided to give more details of what happens on day six. And so we've been looking at it from an airplane view But now we're going to land the plane and look, kind of do a flashback to day six and look at the details. It's kind of like, you know, different people tell different stories in different ways, right? Where you could hear a story from someone and they say, "Uh, I went to the store and uh, then I came back. And that's probably a guy's version of the story, right? And then you hear uh, a girl's version says, well, I got in my car and upon getting in my car, I left my water bottle in the house. And then I had to go back in the house and then grab my water bottle. So then I went to the car and then I turned the keys on. And when I turned the keys on, I thought I heard a little something with the engine, but I wasn't exactly, right? And, and it's just so much more detail. Well, a way to think of this is that the first chapter of the book of Genesis is kind of like uh, the guy's overview. Like this is what happened. And then the chapter two is like to add, add some of that, uh, that detail, okay? So that's what we're looking at today. Let's pray together and dive in to see Adam begin to settle into his new home. Father, we come before you this evening and we pray that you would bless and anoint the message today, that it wouldn't just be information, but it would be transforming power through the word of God that would change our lives. Lord, that of course we would increase in knowledge, that knowledge would make its way to the depths of our heart, that it might make its way out into our life. Lord, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but doers. And so we pray that you'd bring the appropriate interpretation, that we'd understand it, but also the appropriate application, that we might go and live according to what you've said. And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. So we're basically, as I said, going to be looking at Adam settling in to this new place. And so the first thing that we're going to see in verses 8 through 14, which we're going to read together in a moment, 
is we're going to see man's first home. Uh, This is where man first settled and was uh, directed by God himself. So look in your Bibles with me, and we'll read starting in verse 8, going down to verse 14. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The, The tree of life, excuse me, was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is uh, Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, uh, where there is gold. You're going to have to bear with me with these names. Verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and the Ankh stone uh, are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is uh, Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So it seems to me that God has put something in you and I as people that we have a need for a home. We have a desire that I believe is built in to our very nature that we need to have a place to to call home. Regardless of how much we might travel, we always want to know there's somewhere to go back whenever we're done. And I think this is why as Christians, God has so emphasized that our home is ultimately not here, but in heaven. But even uh, even just earthly speaking, there's something in us that we feel like we need a place uh, to call our own. This is exactly what we have going on here. This is not a bad thing. I think this is a God thing. And we are told that God prepared this place that Adam would be able to call home. God would put the whole earth under man's dominion. Remember, we looked at that last week. God says, I give you dominion and rulership over the earth. He said, fill it and subdue it. But God seems to prepare a particular region for man. And that region is called Eden. Now, Eden, if you are taking note, it means delight. Eden means delight. It it, it was intended to be a place of paradise, a place of paradise. And it seems that from the text, from what verses uh, 8 and 9 kind of indicate to us, is that God decided to take this region called Eden, and in the east part of this region, he would plant a garden. Notice what it says in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. You know, we usually refer to the garden as the Garden of Eden, and that's true, but there is actually other territory that would have been in Eden that was not part of the garden that God made. From what it seems is that God would have made man on the westward part of Eden because then it says that after he formed man, that he took man and put him in the garden that he made on the eastward side of this place called Eden. Now, the indication here is, and some kind of see and speculate that Adam was created and then the garden was created for Adam. And so some wonder, did Adam see God create this home, this place 
uh, this garden. Uh, it's, it's something definitely interesting to think about. And so look in your Bibles, verse 8 gives us kind of this initial summary statement, okay? It says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now for the following verses, in verses 9 through 14, it gives us kind of the details of the garden. Okay, well, God made this garden. Well, what was this, what was this place like? Well, we're given some details. Look in your Bibles, and you'll notice in verse 9 that we're told that there were certain kinds of trees and plants that were put in the garden. There were some uh, that wouldn't have fit the bill. And so there's certain criteria. Number one, you can note it down, is that this, this tree would have to look good. And so it would have to be pleasant to the sight. It would have to have a desirable appearance. And so God made all the trees, but in the garden that God made for man, he wanted the ones that were, were desirable to look at regarding its fruit. But then secondly, uh, that fruit tree would have to taste good. It would be good for food. It would be, have a desirable taste. And so this kind of shows us that God handcrafted the specific plants that would have been in the garden. I think all this is to show us is that God really loved Adam and cared about him, that he didn't just put him in any place on the planet, but he made a specific place that Adam would be able to call home. Now, does that mean Adam wasn't able to travel to other places? Absolutely not. He was to fill the whole earth, subdue it. But God seems to think it's important for Adam to have this home base. And so he picks out the specific trees that would have been good for food and that would have looked good as well. Now, you'll also notice in verse 9, there's two specific trees mentioned, okay? Look at verse 9. Number one, there's the tree of life that he says is in the midst of the garden, this tree would have been smack dab in the middle of this garden that God created. It would have been the most important of the trees. And then the second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these are the two specific trees that are mentioned. These are real trees that had real fruit on them. Though they had spiritual implications to which we'll talk about today, they were real trees with real fruit. We don't know what kind of tree and we don't know what kind of fruit those trees produce. But nonetheless, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were two trees. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, the midst, that's what it says. We don't know the exact location of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we'll get more uh, to what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is when we come to man's first command, but we're not there quite yet. But from what we can understand from other Bible passages regarding the tree of life, it seems that God put that tree in the middle of the garden, not just because it probably tasted real good, but there was a, uh, a significant um, something that that tree had to do with. I believe that, that that would have been what would cause Adam and Eve to, to live continually. This is why God had to take away their ability to eat of the fruit after they sinned against God. You guys remember this? 
uh, maybe reading in the past. We haven't gotten to it yet on our studies. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, they've already sinned against God. And God had to make sure that Adam and Eve, after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they sinned against God. They were not to eat of the tree of life because that would have meant they were in that sinless state forever. That's what the tree of life does. When you eat of it, it, it helps you to live forever. And so Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so God didn't want man stuck in that state of sinfulness and separation from God. Now this same tree is actually going to be planted as well in the new Jerusalem. Uh, the tree of life is something that each and every one of us are going to be able to partake of in the future in eternity. Uh, not in heaven, but the new Jerusalem, the city that God creates for you and I. And what's kind of wild about this is that we see this tree in Genesis chapter 2, and then we see it all the way make its way, and there's mentions of it throughout the Bible, in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, and we see that in eternity, on the new Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem, that there's this tree that changes fruit every month. That'd be pretty cool, right? Imagine you planted a tree and one month it has apricots and the next month it has plums and the next month it has apples and the next month it has pineapples. Like that'd be the best tree ever. Well, this tree seems to have different fruit, but even additional to the fruit being good for taste, uh, there's actually beneficial properties. Notice what Revelation 22, 2 says. In the middle of its streets and on the other side of the river was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, that you would be able to take the, the leaves. And, there's some, and I don't know what this looks like, but God says there's some additional benefit in eternity that the leaves produce from this tree. So this is a significant tree that will make its way into eternity. We find it in the midst of the garden. Okay. Is that making sense? You guys tracking? So that's man's first home. Now the author gives us quite a few details regarding the geographical location. Do you guys remember when I read all those names? So in verses 10 to 14, look in your Bibles, verses 10 to 14, it'll, it says that there is this river that ran through the Garden of Eden to water it. It would have been a lush place, and so it needed a good water supply. And it says that from that uh, go these four river heads, um, and, and he begins to name and gives us some geographical indications of, of, of where the Garden of Eden was located. Now, the problem with that, because it would be pretty cool to locate, like, knowing where the Garden of Eden is. Now, some people have some guesses that it would be in what is modern-day Iraq, which is hard to even believe that that's where the Garden of Eden would be. Uh, but based upon some of these rivers uh, are named that to this day. However, what happens in between what we're reading and modern-day is a worldwide global flood that would have taken out any sort of rivers, lakes, and uh, would have completely changed the man la uh, land mass. And so we really don't have any good idea other than more than likely it would be in the Middle East of where the Garden of Eden would be. 
Uh, there's a lot of speculation on, on it, but it really doesn't matter uh, because it's not a place that we, you and I can go and visit today, okay? Does that make sense? So that's man's first home. Uh, secondly, we're looking at man's first job. We find that in verse 15 within the second chapter of Genesis. You can read with me verse 15, short and simple. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. God gives man purpose as he places him in the garden. Now that that word put in verse 15 uh, carries the meaning that it would have been a place of rest, but not just a place of rest, but also a place of work. And we see both of those things within the early creation account, right? God worked for six days, and what did he do on the seventh? He rested. And so both of these things would have existed within the life of Adam, who was made in God's image, right? And so it would have been a place of rest, a place of delight and paradise, like we talked about. But it doesn't mean he just like sat around, you know, uh, drinking coconut smoothies all day. Like he would have been working, but it would have been on the garden. And one of his jobs would have been to tend and to keep it. This word tend and keep, uh, to tend, it means literally to work, to exert or to, 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 to put effort into uh, something. And that word keep, it would have been to maintain and take care of. Adam's job would have been to keep the, the uh, garden looking beautiful and orderly. Yes, God created it, but it needed to be sustained over time to keep its beauty. And so listen, even in a perfect world, work is not removed. That's why in eternity, eternity is described as a place of rest, but also work. This is how God's created us, and it is good. God works, but God also rests. You and I, we work and we also rest. The problem is because of our sin and because of Adam and Eve's sin, literally part of the curse is to make work less enjoyable. That's why sometimes work can have a uh, negative connotation about it. It's because it, 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 it can, it's because of the curse itself. Notice Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. This is when God curses uh, or gives the, the specific curse to man, uh, Adam specifically. He says, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, in work, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, uh, you'll, you shall eat bread. Meaning that work used to be something more enjoyable. I don't know if it was less sweaty. I don't know if, right, because this has to do with kind of Adam's job. Adam's job was to tend and keep the garden. Now to be able to grow plants was going to be a lot more difficult. You know, now uh, it does take a little bit of work to grow something. Like it's still kind of easy. Um, you know, you put the seed in the ground, but, and, and really it's God's creation that does a lot of the work, but it's a lot harder now than it was beforehand. And so this is kind of needs to fuel our understanding of how we look at work, how we look at doing something. Um, it's, it's doesn't have to be negative. You see, you know, you can kind of experience this Uh, maybe on a summer vacation. Some of you guys are back in school. Now, some of you are bummed to be back, but some of you are excited to be back because as much as you liked not being at school, 
uh, you kind of got really bored. And uh, life started just feeling kind of like, you know, the days just blended together. You didn't even know what day it was when you wake up. And you start to feel really unfulfilled. I believe that's because God has put in us the desire to work. And when we are not working, I think that is the cause of a lot of people's depression and anxiety today. Is because they have no purpose. They have no fulfillment. God has put this desire to work in man. And when we don't, we don't do what God has designed us to do. Okay? Does that make sense? So the first job was Adam was a gardener. Ain't nothing wrong with being a gardener. Okay? The third one that we're looking at today out of four, in case you wanted to know, is man's first command. Not that he commanded but this was God's command to Adam. The first thing, uh, command that he was directed by God. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me in your own Bibles. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so once again, we have mention of the one of two specific trees that God put in the garden. He put in a lot of trees, but there are two specific ones, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God gives Adam a command, a direct instruction. And uh, we find that he's very clear on this. Okay, look at verse 16 and 17. You really don't have to interpret interpret much there. It's kind of a plain meaning. The command is clear and the consequence is clear. Those are the two things he gives. He gives the command and then he gives the consequence for violating the command, which is good. He didn't have to, did he have to give Adam the consequence? No. He could have just said, don't eat from it. He said, every other tree, go for it as much as you like. Fill yourself up. Pick as much as you want plant more trees. But there's one tree in the entire world. Don't eat from. But God is gracious and also gives him like the reason why, that if you do this, death is going to enter your life. And so the clear command, he says, but I love that there's this positive side. He said, hey, Adam, look around. Every tree, every single one of them. And we know that the trees in the garden were good to look at, Ooh, that looks tasty. And the the fruit from those trees was great, delicious. He says, of all the trees you may freely eat, as much as your heart desires, it it is all you can eat goodness. And I'm sure it was a whole lot better than even fruit now. But you guys ever get like a good piece of fruit? Oh man, I can respect a good piece of fruit. Like a good, Tate and I have been eating some nectarines lately. Oh my gosh. Go to Sam's Club, get a whole, just ask your mom, mom, can we get, have you ever had a good nectarine that's like perfect consistency? Not too mushy. There's a firmness and a sweet, it's better than any man-made thing ever. And that's with sin. Okay. And so this is pre-sin. He says, anything you want. He says, eat of it. But there's one, one command. He said, he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the consequence was also clear though. Notice the second half uh, of, of verse 17 there. He says, you shall surely die. Now, the reason that the text says you shall surely die 
is because in Hebrew, the word death is mentioned twice. Translated literally, it would be this, that in the day that you eat of the fruit, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. It's this idea that God is really emphasizing, this is not gonna be good. Like double death. And I think there is some parallelism uh, for us to, to, to take from that. Now, I've asked you this before, but when Adam, I asked you this on, on Sunday, I think. When Adam ate of the fruit, did he instantly drop dead? Was there something poisonous in that fruit that, that, that went through his body and immediately dropped dead there in Eden? No, because you and I wouldn't be here if that was the case, right? They didn't have kids at that point. So Adam did not die instantly, but instantly he was separated from God. This is spiritual death. And so we think that there is a reference to spiritual death, complete disconnection. That's why God said the question to Adam, where are you? Eventually that separation would be fulfilled when they were removed from this prepared place, this garden that God put them in. But additional to that, what this did start, dying you shall surely die. What this happened in his physical body was at that moment, death and decay started. Not just personally for Adam, but globally. About 900 years after this or so, we don't know how old Adam was at this point, but he would die a physical death. And that would obviously enter into all of our lives as well. But what is this tree exactly? What is it about this tree tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God put it there? And what, what is it? Well, I believe it was a symbol of knowing good and evil. So the word for knowledge here, I want you to note down, it is not referring to an intellectual knowledge, but an, an experiential knowledge. You see, for Adam, he already intellectually and experientially knew good. And so he had already gotten, in a sense, one half of what the tree would produce in his life. He knew good because God did good for him, right? He knew good intellectually. God said, this is good stuff. And he experienced it because he experienced the goodness of God in his life. But God said, you don't want to experience evil. And so as soon as he would eat from the fruit of this tree, he would experience evil firsthand because he disobeyed God, which is evil and is a lack of good. Now, what this tree seems to represent in the garden is God being the moral lawgiver. Do you remember that verse I shared with you, Genesis 3, 22? God said that, he said, man is now like us. He's, he's talking within the Godhead, within the Trinity. He knows good and evil. Now, the problem with that, God knows good and evil. He could eat of the fruit and there's no problem because he is God. He is the moral law giver. He was the one who would establish what good and evil is. And so, of course, he knows it, yes? But for Adam to take of the tree, what that represented would be that Adam would be trying to establish his own moral authority over God all while stepping into uh, God's given dominion and rule. Did God give Adam dominion and authority? Yes. There's one boundary that God gave Adam. And I believe it was a test 
to see if he would submit to the authority of God in his life. When God gave authority to Adam, it didn't mean that God gave up his authority, but there was this, this order of things. And you see, we see in the story of Lucifer falling in the Bible in Isaiah 17 and Ezekiel 38, we see that the, the sin of Lucifer who also came to this position and challenged the authority of God. He said, I will be like the God most high. And do you remember what Satan said? We're gonna look at it next week in Genesis 3 to, to Eve. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you're, God doesn't want you to eat it because you will be like him. You see, part of that desire and temptation for Eve was she wanted to be like God. And so the essence of the tree them taking it would, would be the power to decide for themselves what was in their best interest. What was, what was it like to, to be like God? Now, the problem was that they had already experienced good, but in that moment, they would experience evil. And so the question comes up often is, is, is the choice, right? Why did God put the tree in the first place? And I want to put these two, two concepts in your mind. And they're the concepts of contrary choice and confirmed choice, okay? At this point, Adam and Eve, Eve, they did not have confirmed choice. They had, they had the ability for contrary choice. Now, what is contrary choice? It is the ability to choose contrary to what you are, meaning opposite of what you are. God made Adam and Eve perfect. He made them what the Bible says is holy and pure. But at this point, their holiness was untested holiness. It was really untested commitment. You see, you don't know who you're committed to until, until there's a test, until there's a choice. And so they had what is called creaturely holiness, but they did not have creator holiness. You see, God is described in the Bible as absolute, meaning God will never choose contrary to his nature, okay? The Bible says God is not just like holiness, he is holiness, he is perfection. And so it is impossible for God to choose opposite of his nature. But for Adam and Eve, they were created in a way that they had the ability to choose contrary to themselves. Holiness, I believe, would have been confirmed if the test of love and obedience had been passed. Let me, let me give you an example. You and I right now, we are like Adam and Eve where we have the, choo we have the choice to choose contrary to what God has asked us to. But for us who are believers, we have made this commitment to Jesus and Jesus has given us eternal life. So there's gonna come a moment when you and I are resurrected in eternity. At that point, our contrary choice, ability to do that, will move into the category of confirmed choice. Meaning you and I in heaven will never again choose contrary to our nature. Have you ever heard of the concept that in heaven will be perfected, will be complete? Listen, we will never go back on that. 
We, we know this and we see this with the angels. You see, the angels were created not with a confirmed choice, but with the ability to choose contrary to themselves. Because if God doesn't create beings with a choice, then he creates puppets. He creates robots. And so the angels, they had a choice. And we see that Lucifer and other fallen angel, angels, they chose to rebel against God, right? So after that point, now their choice moves into confirm, where the two-third of the angels who stayed in heaven confirm choice. They will always be with God. They will never choose contrary to their nature ever again. But those, those that chose against God, their choice was also confirmed. Well, they, they will never be able to choose God again. Does that make sense? And so for Adam and Eve, we got to understand that this was a test of their love for God. God showed Adam love and would continue to do so. But you see, a relationship is a two-way road, right? Adam's obedience to God would have displayed his love back to God. Adam was not made like a puppet. He was created as a moral being who would choose what to do. And just like you and I, we can choose. Now, even as Christians, when we choose sin, it's actually a contrary choice. It's opposite of the new nature that God's given us. I, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get to heaven where that choice is confirmed. But right now, you and I are in, like Adam and Eve, we are in a test state with God. Will you obey him and display your love for him? Okay, does that make sense? Does that, hey, does that help clear up the, the tree at all? Okay, hopefully it does. All right, the last thing we're looking at tonight is man's first marriage. We saw his first home getting settled in, the first job, he gets a command from God. Okay, God, got it. All the trees, just not that one. Put an X over it. Man, if Adam was smart, he would have like built like a wall around that tree, right? He would have like dug a moat and, and, and made a river and, and made it hard to get to, but we don't know how much time had passed. But nonetheless, we see man's first marriage. Let's read together verses 18, uh, 19, and, and we'll go to verse 20, and then we'll, we'll read those other ones in a little bit. You guys okay? You guys tracking? Taking it all in? All right, love it. Look at verse, look at verse 18. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so after God places Adam in the garden, assigns Adam a job, and commands Adam, he looks at Adam and sees, you're incomplete. He, he uses these words. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. It's not that it was evil or bad, but that it was incomplete. It was unfinished. The idea of, of good here is that which is appropriate or fitting. He says, he says, man, I see you, Adam, and I just I know I just made you, I just put you in the garden, just commanded you, but it's not good that you're you're alone. He says, it is not good that man shall be alone. Now we we have to understand what's being said here. 
God doesn't say it's not good that man should be lonely. He doesn't use the word lonely. He uses the word alone. It wasn't that like Adam went and complained to God and said, God, this is all great. Love the trees, animals, very cool. Um, but I'm, I'm a little lonely here. Now, Adam didn't come to God and say his need. God saw Adam's need and he saw that it was incompleteness. And so he began to set something up. He says, I'm gonna make a helper comparable to you. But it seems before God just brings this comparable helper that he first wants Adam to see his own aloneness. He almost wants Adam to come to that conclusion that he is incomplete before God just does this in his life. And we believe that he does this uh, by giving uh, Adam another job of naming the animals. So this is still all on day six. It was a busy day. And so notice that, that the animals then begin, and there's specific animals. It's not every animal ever created, but animals begin to come to Adam and we're told that he names them. And so I think number one, this shows his rulership over them. Animals and mankind are not equivalent. And so this shows man's rulership over them. But also by the end of it, we're told that he doesn't find a helper comparable. And I don't think that was ever the, the goal. God wasn't like hoping like, man, I hope him and the giraffe really hit it off. <laughs> no, that was never the hope. It was for Adam to see the animals and say, man, I, I, I mean, I, I, like, I like that dog. That's a good looking dog. But, but I just, it's not, I, I, I can't talk to them. I, I don't have this, this fellowship with them. They're not like me. And I think there's something underlying here that God really wants to show you and I. As great as your puppy dog is, and as great as your dog in your life maybe gives you comfort, it cannot replace per, uh, a personal interaction. That, that, that humans are altogether different and on another level. And so more than likely, uh, many scholars believe that the animals would have passed by uh, Adam uh, with a male and female. Um, which would have then further, further confirmed for Adam that, man, okay, all, even all the, man, even the possums have, have, a, have a partner, but we're like, God, where, where's mine? And so before the very good were come, would come, right? At the end of day six, God would say it's very good. But before that would come, God would make woman. At this time, there's no such thing as a woman on earth. God's last act of creation would be creating woman because I believed he saved the best for last. Now this would, this would complement and complete mankind. And then God, after it's the last thing he creates is a woman. And then he steps back and he says, that's it. Very good. All of creation, very good. Let's read the rest. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked 
and the man and his wife were not ashamed. We're not ashamed. So this account tells us that, that God says, okay, it's time. So Adam, here, take some melatonin. Let's get you to sleep. And we're going to get you to some deep sleep. And uh, he performs a little surgery while he's asleep. And he takes, we're told that he takes one of his ribs and he closes up Adam's body. And with that rib, he makes a woman. Now, this rib, this word rib, okay, it's not like, uh, I think it's a poor translation. Um, a better translation would be that he takes Adam's side, meaning not just the bone that's there, but the flesh and blood along with it. This would include not just, it's not like he takes one single rib and he's like, that'll do. Um, no, it actually that he takes almost like a chunk from Adam. Now, don't worry. He, Adam doesn't wake up all sore and be like, oh my gosh. No, no. God, God gives it, right? He, the idea when he says that he, he closes up the flesh is that he brings immediate healing. But why did God do this? Well, I believe that he did this because it suggests an equal playing field. It also suggests companionship, that there's a connection. Matthew Henry Matthew Henry, if you don't know, is one of the best, was one of the best, he is, he's still living in heaven. He's one of the best Bible commentators of all time. And he says this, the woman was taken from Adam's side, not from his head to rule over him. He didn't have brain surgery, not from his feet to be trampled on. Wasn't that she was going to be lower than him, but from his side to be equal with him from under his arm to be protected, and from close to his heart to be loved. That's a good word. You see, Adam, woman was, was made from Adam's side, that there was a connection, and this connection was immediately understood by Adam, right? So God creates woman. He wakes up from this nap, and he's like, wow, that was, I don't know what just happened. That was a crazy dream. And then he, he, he sees her, right? He sees woman. And he freaks out. He like puts together this little poem. Look what he says. He says, he says, this is bone of my bone. He understood. It seems like God either communicated to him beforehand or after like, hey, I kind of did some surgery on you. Like I would hope that he would prep him for that, but you never know. It says in flesh of my flesh, this idea is that there is this kind of this connection that was made. Many believe that, that this was actually a statement of commitment. This would have been, in a sense, the wedding vows. That he says, hey, we're, we're in it. He said, you were, you were taken from me. This, we, you are that helper comparable to me. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 through 12, Paul would confirm this reality and say this, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. I love the balance this, that this brings. You might ask, well, isn't, isn't Adam better because he was created first? And then some might say, well, isn't, isn't woman better because, you know, first the worst and second the best? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is equality because, yes, the first woman, listen, came from man. But every other man to follow came from woman. There's this balance of interdependency that what the Bible teaches from Genesis chapter 2 is equality 
regarding man and woman. Different, clearly different, or else God would have created them at the same time. But there's a distinction, but there's an equality. Does that make sense? This is contrary to how most of human history has been because of sin and disobedience and rebellion. But God has said this from the beginning, which brings us to one of the most important verses in this passage and in all of scripture. And I don't know if you've heard this before. Raise your hand if you've ever heard this verse before. If you've ever been to a wedding, you have heard this verse, a Christian wedding that is. Um, It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God here establishes and institutes the model and pattern for what marriage should be. God came up with it. Don't let anyone ever tell you different. And God tells us very clearly what it is. And he doesn't have to say what it's not because he says what it is. Anything that is not this is not marriage. Do you understand? God has said this from the beginning. To leave, it means to depart. And to, join, to be joined, it, it literally means in Hebrew to be stuck together like glue. The idea of this was that they were to come together in a new way and be new people. There was a moment where Adam was Adam. There was a moment that Eve was Eve. But very shortly on day six, they became one together. Not that they were Siamese twins all of a sudden. They were still two separate people but that there is this commitment. They were linked together. And look at the result, the very last verse in chapter two. The result was that they were without shame. They were naked before one another, quite literally, and they were without shame. You see, when there's no sin, there's no shame. And they were able to be themselves without thinking about anything else. And you see, it's this passage that is quoted by Jesus, Matthew 19, verse four and six, and we're almost done here. That's where we begin to end. Jesus quotes a passage in Genesis chapter one and in Genesis chapter two. And he says what we just read, but then look at verse six. He says, so then they are no longer uh, two, but one flesh. And look at that statement. Look at the very end. Therefore, what God has joined together let not man separate. I love this because in scripture, marriage is a picture. Did you know that? Marriage is a picture of a higher relationship. Marriage is not the ultimate relationship. Most of you in this room will get married one day. That is not ever to be your highest relationship. What is to be the highest relationship in your life? What do you think? You can say it out loud. You and God. And God gave us marriage, we know from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, 31, and 32, as a picture of God's relationship with the church. So God is trying to communicate something through this passage in Genesis. Because here in Ephesians, Paul would say, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. What does that remind you of? 
Doesn't it remind you of Adam's little song he sang, that little poem? This is, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And now you and I are part of the body of Christ. As woman came from man, now you and I come from Jesus. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. We just read that. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See, as we conclude tonight, and in no way do I want to talk to you guys about marriage. I think it's good. We need to know what it is. But I want to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. Because, you see, what God desires with us is what Adam had with Eve. This unity, that the two became one. And that's what Jesus wants with you tonight. We are the bride of Christ. He wants to be joined with us. He wants to be one flesh where you and I can be unashamed before him. And so we worship God tonight because we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Paul says this, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so just as Adam and Eve were never to be separated, so God says, you and I will never be separated because of my love for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all the symbols in scripture and just even how marriage is this, this honorable, great relationship is just a picture of what you want with us. And God, we pray that tonight that we would lean in to our relationship with you. Lord, we know ultimately that you've given us a home in heaven. Lord, we know that it is you who's given us a job, which is to be your ambassador and representative. Lord, it's you who's given us your commandments. And Lord, you've given us even human relationships. And we know what we're going to look at next week is we're going to see Adam and Eve drop the ball, like all of us have in our own lives. Lord, you told the disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. And God, you have displayed your love for us so clearly. You demonstrated your love by sending your son, by dying on the cross and and so, Lord, we want to respond tonight in obedience, and we want to respond tonight in worship. For you are not only the God who created us, but you have become the God who redeemed us. And so we love you and look to you for all things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.